Welcome to Dangerous Wisdom, a journey into mystery and a gateway to the mind of nature and the nature of mind. This is Dr. Nikos, your friendly neighborhood soul doctor, happy to be here with you so that together we can create a culture of wisdom, love, and beauty. Auspicious interbeing to you and yours, my friends, Coenos Hermes, a deep bow to Sophia, to Gaia Sophia and Cosmic Sophia. At the beginning of every episode, we mention the mind of nature and the nature of mind. And we're going to go into those a little bit more explicitly today. We will look at them somewhat scientifically, yes, scientifically for sure, but with rootedness in wisdom. And technically this is our second episode on ecological thinking. And things are going to get easier and more familiar as we go along, even if we also introduce some subtle and profound ways of thinking There's always this subtle and profound dimension to ecological and spiritual thinking, but it gets more familiar, so it's going to get easier, easier, and I know we're all so busy, and we may feel we have no time or interest in ecological thinking, oh my goodness, but we are ecological beings, so ecological thinking is our birthright and also an ethical imperative. That's just thinking in attunement with what we are and what the world is. And resisting it means resisting what we are. Now in this series, as we've said, we'll get to the heart of some exceptionally important ideas, ideas that can begin to shift our perception and action in the world, helping us live better, love better, and realize the fullest potentials of ourselves and our world. Our world has potentials We can tap, and it's not just finding rare minerals. In our last contemplation, we defined an ecology as a relative wholeness that consists of relative parts or elements, each of which can affect the behavior or activity of the wholeness, as well as the behavior or activity of other relative parts or elements. The relational nature of an ecology means ecologies exhibit interwovenness, which means lots of responsive connections. While each relative element of an ecology manifests a certain degree of relative autonomy, each relative element can only affect other elements or the whole in dependence upon other elements. And we'll illuminate this more as we go along, and as I said, we're going to look at more examples as we go along. The interwovenness that we're talking about here is a basic aspect of reality, that there are not independent things floating around in our cosmos. Everything is relational. And so that interwovenness as a basic aspect of reality, means it's going to be a basic aspect of ecologies. And the interwovenness is so important, in fact, that we could revise our definition to put it right in there, to say that an ecology is a relative wholeness, wholeness, pardon me, constituted by an interwovenness of relative parts. 
So it's a relative wholeness constituted by an interwovenness of relative parts. And that's the sense of responsive connections. That interwovenness will transcend the conventional boundaries we might at first place around an ecology. And we'll go into that a little bit further later in our inquiry. Remember that our definition differentiates an ecology from a mere aggregate. If we throw a bunch of rocks into a pile, we have an aggregate, but not a functioning ecology. We think of the rocks as having a physical relationship, but we don't think of the rocks as responsive to meaning from other rocks. Now we can add here that a fundamental activity of ecologies is making themselves in an ongoing dynamism. And this further differentiates ecologies from mere aggregates. You won't one day open the silverware drawer to find that the forks have eaten some of the spoons and that they grew larger and produced baby forks, which were also eating some more spoons. But living ecologies must continually make themselves, and they do this by means of the principles we will outline in this series. Again, this applies to our whole life together. So this is not at all abstract. It's just that we don't get an education in this. We don't start up learning ecology in kindergarten and then get to level one, level two, level three, and on and on all the way through high school. We could have ecology courses all the way through school the way we have math class. But the ecologies would be far more practical, the ecology courses. And we noted the radical nature of an ecology, that each relative element of an ecology can only affect other elements or the whole in dependence upon other elements. And that's, that's a very, that's radical in the sense that that's root, that's the root of any, it's a root element or aspect of an ecology, but it's also a kind of radical shift in perspective. It means no part of an ecology can have dominion over the whole. And the whole thing arises as mutual interdependence. And that says a lot already about how human beings live in the world. We're not really living in accord with this. The relative elements arise fully interwoven or interdependent. And that means that an ecology arises as a relative wholeness that we cannot actually divide into elements that exist independently or exist from their own side, so to speak. That's why we, we're using the word relative, relative parts, relative autonomy. Our definition then really inherently evokes wholeness. And this wholeness is a more subtle thing than we may realize. Now, we could, those are some of the basic things that we we touched on in our first contemplation. And this time I wanted to go into a slightly more detailed definition of an ecology, drawing from the work of Gregory Bateson. In his work, Bateson gives six criteria for ecologies, which we will adapt here slightly for our purposes. You can find them in his book, Mind and Nature, A Necessary Unity, Mind and Nature. As we consider these six criteria, you can sense our more pared-down definition within them, but you can also clearly sense how these criteria pull out a lot of details that we only have kind of implicitly intended in our more basic definition. So here are Bateson's six criteria. 
that an ecology must meet in order to be an ecology rather than a mere assemblage, and anything that meets these six criteria is an ecology. The first criterion, an ecology is a relative wholeness consisting of relative parts, and none of the parts can influence the whole or any other part except independence upon the other parts and the whole. Now that's obviously our way of kind of putting his first criterion. It matches up with our definition, and again, we're adapting these a little bit from Bateson's presentation, but this is the essence of his first criterion, if you look it up yourself. The second criterion he has, the interactions between the parts of an ecology are triggered by difference. And difference is a non-substantial phenomenon not located in space or time. That's kind of a profound thing for him to say. That the interactions between parts of an ecology are triggered by something not located in space or time. It's almost like something mystical. And what he's saying is that, I mean, what a thing to say. Ecologies unfold on the basis of something that has no location. So what is it? Well, it's relational. And we can call this really meaning. Meaning doesn't exist somewhere in space or time. We can't grab hold of it. Rather, meaning arises as part of relationality. And Bateson uses the idea of difference because we can only detect meaning in relative difference. You have to hear these words as words and not a bunch of noise for them to make a difference to you. Interestingly, absence can also have a meaning even though it doesn't exist in the way we think of things existing. So if I send you a letter, that letter could have a physical impact on your ecology. You know, It's going to be an object that arrives there and maybe you somebody accidentally... Uh, sets a drink on it thinking that it's uh, because they can't see the edge of the table and so then their drink spills because this letter was laying on the edge of the table and the person thought the table went all the way under the letter but it didn't you know i'm just trying to imagine here a physical impact the physical letter could have some impact in your life you could get a paper cut from it it could do something because it's an object relatively speaking Now, on the other hand, if I fail to send you a letter you hoped to receive, that also has a meaning. It doesn't have a physical cause anymore. There's no physical presence. But you, let's imagine, and I know I'm using the example of a letter because an email is a weird example to use, so we have to pretend we're in the Stone Age. And so we imagine that you wanted the difference of going from not having my letter to having my letter, for whatever reason. Maybe you emotionally you needed this letter from me, or legally, whatever. And so you register the non-appearance of any difference. Sameness is different from difference. So that makes a difference to you. And what we're saying here is that zero might not be able to have a physical effect, but it can have an ecological effect. And we have here an incredibly radical suggestion, really, just in this criterion, because it shifts ecological thinking out of the material and into the meaningful. Some ecologists and many other kinds of scientists treat our world as constituted by material energy flows. You can still see 
You can read ecologists writing about ecologies as a flow of material energy. And that's even sometimes how we calculate so-called ecological services in terms of material energy flows. We are taking a different route. But it's not merely like, oh, so he's the philosopher, so he's going to make it about meaning. No, Bateson was a scientific thinker. And so what we're saying is rooted more in wisdom than a flow of energy picture would be, a physicalist, materialist picture of ecologies. That's not really rooted in wisdom, in part because we are living beings. A living world operates on the basis of flows of meaning, not merely on the basis of flows of physical energy. Now, we can't pretend physical energy doesn't exist, but living systems are alive because they respond to meaning, or we can say those things go together. They don't merely respond to force. And when they respond to force, it's because of its meaning. And this idea itself has wondrous implications, including the implication that we can overcome power by overcoming the use of the metaphor of power. Think deeply about that. We find a lot of discourse about power. It's been a big presence in philosophy for a long time, of course. And we have famous books about power, like the 48 Laws of Power. And we have shows about power. There's all, these, all this stuff about power. And we have the, the powerful and the oppressed. And we th- then think we have to fight against those who have power. But power is a metaphor. A metaphor that keeps us locked in a bad way of knowing ourselves, each other, and our world. Discussions of power in politics, culture, and our personal life end up indoctrinating us into a mechanistic universe. It's a terrible irony then, as we sit around talking about power and domination, and I've used that language too, and maybe maybe I will try to stop doing that, because I, I do realize that it's problematic. And sometimes we're trying to even honor those who, ha- who have felt oppressed or been abused by power by, by using that language. But it's, it does indoctrinate us into a mechanistic universe. That sort of universe is not alive and alive, but we are. And the way out of power dynamics is a shift of metaphor. We free ourselves by means of meaning not by means of force. And that's a profound thing to consider when we think about our urgent need to shift our ecologies, to shift the cultural ecologies in how they relate and how they arise in non-duality with the ecologies we depend on in the natural world. They're not two things, nature and culture. And we can't get back into attunement if we argue about power. But we could transcend the sort of experience that we have that structures of power are destroying the world and structures of power are are oppressing, that there is some kind of experience that seems to fit the metaphor. And, And it's almost like a Zen puzzle, you could say, like a case of spiritual common law. We have to shift completely out of it, not try to struggle against the so-called power. Okay, so that's enough of that. 
The third criterion, ecological processes require collateral energy. That's how Bateson puts it. In other words, what he's getting at is if I throw a crumpled piece of paper at a wall, the wall will not move, right? Picture that. You crumple up a piece of paper, you throw it against a big brick wall, the wall's not going to move. If I throw a crumpled piece of paper at a very sheer piece of fabric, let's say a very sheer gossamer piece of fabric, well, the fabric will sway, but it will only sway or move as far as the energy of the paper can move it. However, if I throw a crumpled piece of paper at a puppy, the puppy may jump up and start playing. The energy of the puppy's response comes from the puppy as an ecology. Ecologies produce and release energy, while crumpled pieces of paper don't. Ecologies engage in processes of metabolism, and those are inherently about meaning, that something means food to the ecology. And so Bateson says collateral energy by saying, well, it goes along with it. That's not the primary thing. The more important thing is meaning, but he's still acknowledging, yes, there are flows of energy involved. And that the important principle here is the energy that is made by the ecology, so to speak, that the ecology has its own metabolic energy. The fourth criterion, ecological processes require circular and even more complex processes of determination. They must have more than linear chains. And their circular processes transcend conventional boundaries around the ecologies. So if we picture a billiard table, and let's say that I use the, the uh, cue stick to strike the cue ball, and then the cue ball strikes the eight ball, and then the eight ball goes into the corner pocket. That is a linear chain. We're done. That's the kind of thing that happens in a mechanistic world. But now I've been playing billiards for a while, and I've beaten you yet again. Yes, I'm a regular Minnesota Fats. But then I get hungry, and I eat food that my body uses to make the very parts of itself that signal hunger and make eating possible. Aha! Now that is a loop. And this point also relates to the way that parts can only influence each other in an interwoven way with each part dependent on other parts and on the whole. Because maybe my feeling of hunger, I realize, well, I'm too hungry to concentrate on the game. So the the parts that are playing the billiard game are relying on the parts that digest the food and the parts that signal that it's time to get some more food. Okay, that's even a bit of a linear way of talking about it, but that's at least we're trying to think in terms of loops. And this image also illustrates a key aspect of the way the relations work in an ecology. They unfold recursively. Recursion is a key characteristic of ecologies. And we can see how human beings ignore this aspect and ignore the fullness of these loops. So we had a little bit of recursion in the example, which is that when I eat the food, as my body digests it, it uses the nutriment to make the very parts that 
carried me to the food and allowed me to eat it and digest it. So eating the food renews my jaw muscles, my lips, my all, all the cells in my mouth. It renews my stomach and my stomach lining and my digestive tract. And all of that is renewed through the process of eating. So I, I eat the food and that allows me to eat more food. However, this process of hunger should include an aspect in which I, as the human being, metabolize the food and then excrete in such a way that more food can grow. And that would be a, a, a further recursion. It comes back more fully. And there we can see, rather starkly, one of the problems with our habitual way of thinking. Namely, that we do not give back to the ecologies we depend on. We close off that full, more fully recursive loop, cutting ourselves off from ourselves, not seeing the interwovenness and recursiveness of our ecologies, not seeing that ecologies depend on recursiveness, that we are going to be making what we consume and consuming what we have made. That's how we end up with lead and plastic in our blood. And we, we, we break these recursion loops and, and, and cut ourselves off from ourselves and harm ourselves in so many ways in our consumer culture, in part because we extract from all over the place. If you look at any given nation, I think we may have mentioned this in another contemplation, especially in what we refer to as the developed economies, most of the things we use on a daily basis are not made where we live or even in the nation where we live. I mean, they're not made in our town, but they're probably not even made in our nation. We use our phones. We use our laptops. We use our cars. Some of these things we use daily. We depend on them heavily. But these things are not produced where we live. They come from ecologies far away. They rely on extraction all over the globe. And we do not have vitalizing loops back into those ecologies. We do not have a lifestyle and livelihood in which we actively cultivate relationships with local ecologies. And through those relationships, bring things into being and give back to those ecologies, furthering them along in their process. We don't live so as to make life itself more possible right where we live or even in general. And of course, this happens when we eat. We eat and we may have taken that food from very far away, from a place where we have no vitalizing loops feeding back into the full living ecologies. And then, after we metabolize that food, we don't give anything back. <laughs> you know what we do, we flush it away. So we practice cutting off and closing off complex loops, circles, spirals, fractals, and this degrades the very mind of our world. We need better practices of life, practices that cultivate the whole of life onward. Okay, so that's the fourth criterion, that we have these loops. The fifth criterion is that in ecological processes, the effects of difference are regarded as transformations of events which preceded them. 
the rules of such transformations must be comparatively stable, but they are themselves subject to transformation, which is important. Now, the idea here is that you are not hearing sound waves right now. You don't experience yourself as hearing sound waves. Rather, you experience hearing my voice. So, you are right now experiencing criterion number five. Well, you're experiencing them all because you're in ecology. But you are experiencing that the effects of differences are regarded as transformations. You are transforming the sound waves into words. If we replace you with someone who doesn't speak any English at all, the exact same sound waves will produce zero meaning. So, final criterion, number six. The description and classification of these processes of transformation disclose a hierarchy of logical types imminent in the phenomena. Now, this is a more complicated point, which we will go into some other time, but for now, let's just say, as an example, dogs know the difference between play fighting and real fighting, and that is because, as ecologies, they implicitly recognize context, and that's part of what this one is getting at. Sometimes we can hear dogs playing, and the growling can sound scary to us. We get a little nervous, but the dogs, unless the context has has begun to shift, they, they know context. I once saw a video of a dog in Alaska who engaged in play behavior with a polar bear. The polar bear was just wandering on to the, where the dog lived with their human, and the dog was tied up outside. The human was hiding in the house and felt terrible. I can't go out there and save my dog. I might, I'm going to get killed by this polar bear. And the polar bear could have just killed and eaten the dog. The dog could have freaked out and tried to attack the polar bear or bear teeth, you know, and try to threaten a polar bear, which would be crazy. And so maybe the dog somehow intuitively understood there was only one gambit to make in that situation. You imagine you're a dog, you're tied up, and here's this gigantic monster. And so what do you do? Try to change the context. I'm not prey, I'm a playmate. And he got in, he started engaging in play behavior, and the bear decided to play. They played for quite a while, and then the bear just moved on. So these ideas, these are six criteria for ecologies, and here is a very, very, very important point. These criteria apply not only to ecologies, but also to thinking, learning, evolution, and life in general. And these things only arise in systems that satisfy these criteria. And in fact, Bateson initially offers these six criteria as criteria of mind. See, we set them up as six criteria of ecologies, He sets them up as six criteria for mind, and then he just adds, well, by the way, these criteria apply to thinking and to ecologies and to evolution and to learning and to life. And that means ecologies are minds, and minds 
are ecologies. And it means ecologies think. Ecologies depend on learning and communication. And evolution itself is a mental process. Wow. Isn't that crazy? Isn't that amazing? This is the world we live in. It's startling when you think. I mean, normally, we just don't think this way. Maybe you already have. And you say, oh, yes, I know all this. But really, not many of us have deeply considered this basic unity, this basic identity of mind, ecology, evolution, life, and learning. And it means in this very inquiry, we are thinking about thinking. We are learning about learning as we go along. So it's not as if we're, we're, we're shifting simply into, oh, there's this thing called ecological thinking. There is a sense in which I want to suggest we need to shift from our habitual thought into this other kind of more holistic thinking that we could call we could call it Sophianic thinking, wisdom thinking, or we could call it ecological thinking. So there's a level at which we want to say, ah, this would be a better way to think, but there's a level at which we want to say, but this just is how all thinking is. And the question is just whether or not we'll be in attunement with how things are when we think, or will we try to think against ourselves, almost in spite of ourselves, you see. thinking in a way that's resisting reality at every step. We don't have to live like that. And it's, it's a struggle. It's the source of all our problems. Now, in our original definition and discussion, we emphasize wholeness and interwovenness, and Bateson does too. The wholeness and interwovenness that characterize the basic nature of the cosmos is alive and a love, which means it has a dynamism. That dynamism means impermanence, a constant flow and flux. We touched on these things in our first contemplation. We can call wholeness, interwovenness, and dynamism the core aspects of reality, if we'd like, and these core aspects of reality give rise to four major characteristics of ecologies, that we can find rather difficult at times to fully accept and work with. And we named those four last time precariousness, uncertainty, complexity, and ambiguity. And the acronym for that is PUCA, P-U-C-A, PUCA. These characteristics arise directly from the core aspects of the nature of reality. And we noted that resistance, denial, or active misknowing in relation to any of these characteristics, gives rise to suffering. You don't know these if you suffer in any way, shape, or form. If you're totally enlightened, then you're just listening to Be Kind to Me, and I appreciate that. Thank you for your compassion. But everybody else, me included, I'm not enlightened, we do not know this interwovenness, we do not know this dynamism, we do not know this wholeness, we do not know the precariousness, uncertainty, complexity, and ambiguity. We may know a little bit about them, little bits here and there, but we also may actively misknow. That is, we will say, I know this, I know that, and we are actively misknowing it and calling it knowledge. 
Last time we touched on precariousness, uncertainty, and complexity, although actually I think maybe we should say a little bit more about complexity before we move on to ambiguity. I'm trying to remember now all that we... Did we say... Maybe we didn't say anything. Ha-ha. Well, let me just say now. Let's say that complexity means a few things. In one sense, complexity does a little bit of double duty here because ecological thinking means complexity thinking. We just It's just complexity is some kind of abstract term. And ecology is a complex system. And complexity science describes living systems. But we have subordinated this mathematical term complexity to make it a feature of ecologies rather than a mere synonym for them. So that's just a little bit of a change in how we're talking about it. Other places, if you go someplace else and somebody says complexity theory, they would mean that they are describing living systems. And we're trying to not make complexity a mere synonym for ecologies. Maybe some people don't do that anyway. But when we're using the term here, we want to say, first of all, that ecologies aren't strictly predictable by by means of our old linear mathematics and our habitual conquest consciousness. Linear mathematics allows us to make a calculation that predicts the future or in some way empowers our habits of manipulation and control. And sadly, that's what we're doing now with complexity theory. We're just trying to expand our manipulation and control. But there still is this difference. And by, by means of linear mathematics, we can calculate how exactly, we can do the, precisely calculate how to get a rocket ship onto the moon or how to land a tiny little rover on the planet Mars. And in a way, this seems to us like the height of power and knowledge. Wow, look at what we can do. But living systems don't really function in accord with that kind of mathematics. They are nonlinear, which means that we have to find some other way to understand how they will unfold, how to interact with them. And we've said we can't just try to manipulate and control them. We have to find a way to, to live as them, to dance, to enter the dance, you see. So we're not firing rockets, we're learning to dance. And we find with living systems that when we make a change, it sometimes has surprising consequences. And complexity teaches us that we cannot always deal with those consequences easily. We can really make a mess of things. Recently I spoke with uh, ecologist Carl Safina, and we were talking about his book Alfie and Me. I like the subtitle of it. What Owls Know, What Humans Believe. Now this is a beautiful work of philosophy. So look for that dialogue, which will come out soon, and also check out his book. It's a, it's a wonderful philosophical book, and I gave him a little bit of criticism about his, his treatment of actual philosophy, actual philosophers. I, see, that's complicated. So what I mean is, this is, it's a beautiful philosophical book. It is a work of philosophy, but then he sometimes deals with figures like Plato, and when he does that, I gave him just a little bit of criticism that I didn't think he was being completely fair, although not completely wrong either. Subtle. You can check out the dialogue. But thanks to Carl, because he has uh, he has a lot of interesting research that he puts into this book. It's not just about owls. He also considers the conditions of culture. 
And he cites a book by Evan T. Pritchard in there. And Pritchard is a descendant of the Mi'kmaq people who are part of the Algonquin nations here on Turtle Island. He's the founder of the Center for Algonquin Culture. And I had already started before encountering Carl's, Carl Safina's book, uh, Alfie and Me, I had already started Pritchard's book, No Word for Time, which reflects on Algon- Algonquin culture. But Safina cites another work by Pritchard that I hadn't looked at yet, and that other book is called Native New Yorkers, and it too is about Algonquin culture. And I'd like to share a passage from Pritchard's book that bears on our inquiry together. Now, Pritchard writes the following from an Algonquin storyteller named Ken Littlehawk of the Mi'kmaq people. And here, so here's a story that Pritchard is sharing that came from Ken Littlehawk. In this story, a young half-Indian boy keeps asking his full-blooded Indian grandfather, he says, teach me to be an Indian. After hearing this for weeks and weeks, grandfather finally promises, okay, I'll teach you. So he brings the boy to the edge of a beautiful lake with clear, still waters. And he gives the boy a big stick. And he says, take this to the edge of the lake and stir the water up real good. And the boy does as his grandfather instructed. And his grandfather is observing and he encourages the boy, stir up the stones, the sand, even the plants growing under the water. And the boy, he's whipping around that stick, having a grand old time. And there's all kinds of leaves and mud and sand and little bits of shell swirling in the water. And the boy steps back to look at it all swirling around. And his grandfather looks at him and he says, Well, now I want you to put everything back exactly as it was before. And the boy looks at his grandfather with wonder. He says, I can't do that. It can never be the same. What is this anyway? I thought you were going to teach me to be an Indian. And his grandfather says, yes. But before you learn what it is to be an Indian, you first need to learn what it is to be a human being. That is really kind of a heavy story when we reflect on it. It illustrates some basic problems with conquest consciousness, problems we all have to face in one way or another these days. We've all been infected by it or affected by it. If we imagine that becoming an indigenous person means learning skillful ecological thinking, then we can see our initial challenge. We, who, if any of us want to become ecological thinkers, if we want to re-indigenize, and just live better, live well with the world, with live in attunement with spiritual and ecological reality, well, the first step is we have to muster up all our humility and acknowledge that we haven't fully accepted that we are human beings, and thus that we are ecological beings. We have so much hubris that we separate ourselves from the world. And really, it can be so subtle. We might say, no, 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 I see myself as part of nature, and yada, yada, yada. But really, there's a kind of transcendence that we carry around, and that allows us to feel that we can do whatever we like. 
Conquest consciousness knows how to stir things up. And in fact, it takes pride in doing so. You can see how proud Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos are of their rockets. And and they're, they're just the tip of the iceberg, right? I mean, they're, this is pervasive in so many ways. We can get in our car, we can go wherever we want. And there's some something in us a little bit te- that's tempted towards seeing ourselves as bold cowboys or brave explorers. And that we're willing to take big risks or that we're very humble. I mean, there are plenty of people who are humble, like not in an ecological way, but just in a, like, they're they're not very extroverted way. But the story is kind of telling us that we amount to nothing more than ignorant children wielding sticks and stirring things up that we don't understand without the intimate sense that they do have their own ordering and that we cannot put them back once we transgress against that ordering. That's the subtle thing, that things have their own, that the oil has its own purpose in the ground. We don't really have a sense for that, and so we all just pump our gas at the gas station, our petrol at the petrol station, and we go. And we don't really feel that we've disturbed the order of things. And this is the meaning of hierarchy that we need to recover, that the world consists of a sacred ordering that we have to respect. We need hierarchy. We can get rid of the notion of power, but we can't get rid of the notion of hierarchy. And so this story gives us an image of the complexity of ecologies, but you know, it does it does that as much by implication as by illustration, you know, because complexity doesn't just mean, you know, when you stir things up, you can't put them back. It also has to do with that sacred ordering that lies behind it, the recursive loops by means of which ecologies think, learn, and evolve. Now, spiritually speaking, complexity plays another role here, can remind us that we often become far more predictable than nature herself is. We can become rather rigid in our habits and reactions, and we lose the spontaneous creativity that characterizes more vitalizing ecologies. That's part of the problem that we face. We're stuck living the way we currently live. We're stuck in it. You can kind of predict that we're going to keep burning fossil fuels for a while. You know? And we, we need to find some way to shake being so predictable. Okay, now finally we come to ambiguity. Remember our acronym, PUCO? We had precariousness and uncertainty and complexity and now ambiguity. The ambiguity arises, it's a characteristic of ecologies, because of the fact that we have no absolute ground under our feet, and thus, in any given situation, we don't have an absolute ground for interpretation. Now, this does not leave everything completely up for grabs. It doesn't mean that there's, oh, everything's just too ambiguous to maneuver. It just means that we find ambiguity even in places that make us feel uncomfortable, And it means we live in a world abundant with cognitive diversity, which means perceptual diversity, diversity in action, and ultimately a diversity of worlds. Maybe we'll get into that in another time, but our world is a world of totally interwoven worlds. It's a very deep suggestion. Maybe we'll come back to it. Now let's emphasize again that the fact that we don't have any absolute ground to stand on doesn't mean that everything becomes a postmodern catastrophe. It just means that there isn't an absolute. And we find creativity and discernment 
active in every moment. We need to fully grok the implications here. This kind of precariousness, uncertainty, complexity, and ambiguity also mean, once again, to say it again, to emphasize it again, that life resists manipulation and control. We don't have to organize society in such a way that we try to maximize certainty and stability in a rigid sense. We can achieve relative stability and we can learn how to properly rely on one another. We can create a culture that roots us in wisdom, love, and beauty so that we become wise, compassionate, and graceful beings who can trust themselves and each other and who can relate skillfully with our ecologies so that we can rely on those ecologies and they can rely on us. In other words, we have a trust in the world and the world can have a trust in us. But we will never eliminate all the precariousness. We will never eliminate all the uncertainty. We will never eliminate all the ambiguity. We cannot eliminate the complexity or the dynamism, the impermanence. And all of this falls out of the wholeness and interwovenness and its dynamism. And we can put this in other ways. It's another thing that we need to repeat quite often. We can't make the world an object that we know. And therefore, in any situation, some aspect of life remains inherently precarious and uncertain. Life itself does not operate at equilibrium because equilibrium would mean death. And when we say life operates away from equilibrium, it doesn't mean life arises out of balance or that beings cannot achieve equanimity. It means we cannot stabilize everything because the nature of nature includes dynamism. Life arises as movement and change. The dynamic flow and flux together with wholeness and interwovenness means we cannot have certainty. We cannot have a solid ground under our feet. But if we look with love and care, we find our ego keeps trying to get that ground under its feet in any way it can. And you see then the, how, why we suffer. That's the process creating suffering for us and all beings. Something in us trying to resist the very nature of what we are. And when we consider this in relation to our economic system, we can see the profound spiritual and ecological flaw of that system. When we go against the very nature of life, the very nature of nature, the mind of nature and the nature of mind, by trying to make a world in which we live as beings who have the whole planet as our niche, Beings who allow the abstraction of money to create a buffer against reality. Economics as an artificial ecology, a system that lives like a vampire off the real flesh and blood ecologies we depend on. That means we've tried to manipulate and control things in extraordinarily deluded ways. We've considered many of these issues in blog posts and in other episodes of the Dangerous Wisdom podcast. For instance, we've spoken about how industrialized bread 
stands out as an excellent example of ecological and spiritual ignorance. The industrial process makes flour much less impermanent, but it also yields less nutritious bread. And of course we noted that bread itself is not necessarily the greatest thing to eat, but it's not horrible when we've adapted to it. Unfortunately, though, we've become dependent on this practice of trying to stabilize flour. And it goes together with industrial agriculture, which we could call invasive agriculture or conquest agriculture. We've also considered how we manipulate and control things so we can fly something or someone thousands of miles in a matter of hours. That gives us a kind of stability and certainty, and we start to depend on that stability and certainty in rigid ways. I know that here on Turtle Island, we love that Amazon Prime delivery. It provides stability and certainty. And we can, any of us can go to some place where we, if we mail a package, we know it's going to get to our friend by tomorrow morning if we need it to. And there's this kind of delusion of manipulation and control in that way of relating to life. And in some ways, I think there's, there's more subtlety because it involves a style of consciousness that we are already seeing through. It's, it's not an object that we can look at. And when we operate in that style of consciousness, when we dance that kind of herky-jerk dance, life will respond back. And the response will let us know we have gone against the music. We have gone against that hierarchy, that sacred ordering. We've gone against the very character of the world, the very character of the cosmos, and our nature too. And we also see our insanity in discussions about sustainable business, climate change, fossil fuels, so-called renewable fuels. Consider that latter notion, renewable energy. Is there such a thing? Energy is an abstraction in the dominant culture. Everything we have comes from Earth and from the living, loving ecologies that constitute our world. We cannot have this so-called energy without extraction. No energy is truly renewable except in the concrete ways ecologies renew themselves, living ones. Human beings do not know renewal the way nature knows renewal. She knows renewal. We don't. We need to admit that we are human beings, that we are ecological beings. And then we can start to do the real work of reindigenizing ourselves by means of skillful ecological thinking. Humility is going to come first. And we could note here too that we, we questioned this whole notion of energy because ecologies are about meaning first. Imagine what our discussions would look like if we put meaning first in relation to this question of energy. You know, I mean, we're obsessed with energy. But ecologies operate on the basis of meaning. So can we begin to see what a problem we've got here? And in fact, then how easy it would be to shift? Because once we shift the meaning, we might find that we don't have quite as big a problem with energy as we thought. It could be. 
but this there's a radical potential here. And it's really worth looking into. As we said before, energy matters. Bateson's not denying that. I'm not denying that. I'm not saying that there's no such thing as energy. The question is, what happens if you start the conversation with meaning? And why won't we start there, you see? The problem is there, and it's it's scary almost. What would happen if we started with meaning? And we can look a little further into it. From the perspective of wisdom, all our talk about reducing emissions, all that emerges as our own insanity. It drives me crazy how people keep talking about carbon. Carbon is not the problem. The problem has to do with our entire way of life, our style of consciousness, our lifestyles, our livelihoods. The problem isn't that our life somehow produces something called carbon emissions which is just an abstract, fragmented concept. Rather, our problem is our our way of life currently degrades the ecologies we depend on to live. We poison the water, air, and soil. We degrade the soil. We waste the water. We trample the web of life. We find contradictions at the center of the way we've organized culture and even the way we've organized our science which itself seeks certainty as opposed to attunement with spiritual and ecological realities. That alone should tell us a lot. Our science, like hard science, but also our economics, which presents itself as a science, and our business endeavors, which try to be evidence-based and data-driven, and so all of that, our whole techno-scientific economic business approach, it seeks data and certainty rather than insight and attunement. It seeks a confused objectivity rather than a sacred participation. Participation in reverence. A participation that can cultivate the whole of life onward. That attunement has to begin with us. We have to clear our mind. That matters more than anything else. We've got to get that right again. We've got to get our minds more stable and clear. A mind of equanimity, a mind of clarity, a mind of non-distraction, a mind of spaciousness and responsiveness, a mind of love and compassion and joyful perseverance. We need to cultivate that mind to deal with the inherent precariousness, uncertainty, complexity, ambiguity, wholeness, interwovenness, and dynamism of this world. That would be the goal of a holistic science, a Gaia Scienza. It would seek clarity of mind and attunement so we can gracefully work with holism and interwovenness in ways that cultivate the whole of life onward. And that's what we're moving toward in our contemplation together. We're trying to get there, one step at a time. Okay, now recall again that we define an ecology as a relative wholeness constituted by an interwovenness of relative parts or elements, 
each of which can affect the behavior or activity of the wholeness as well as the behavior or activity of the other relative elements. And while each relative element of an ecology manifests a certain degree of relative autonomy, each relative element can only affect other elements or the whole in dependence upon other elements and typically in recursive loops. Ecologies think, learn, and communicate, which depends on a flow of meaning and not just a flow of physical forces. So we're, we've elaborated the definition a little bit. You know, it's we'll come to a final version maybe at some point because it's potentially a good thing to memorize, as are Bateson's six criteria. That might seem crazy. What? Memorize? But yeah, it might be helpful. So we'll work on it. Polish it. We should clearly acknowledge here again, just focus on it, that human cultures and the places where they abide arise as ecologies, and even a single human being arises as an ecology, and in fact arises nested or interwoven with other ecologies. So you as a human being, you are an ecology interwoven with other ecologies. And we can consider that a little bit, make it a little concrete. You might have heard the oft-repeated statistic that a human body consists mostly of non-human cells. Estimates vary, but typical calculations put the number of human cells at somewhere around 30 to 37 trillion. That would be how many human cells are in your body if you're an adult. What's the number of non-human cells? Well, it's at least 50% of the total cells that you are. So you, let's say if on the low end you have 30 trillion human cells, you also have 38 trillion non-human cells. So if you altogether are 68 trillion cells, more than 50% of it is non-human. 38 trillion is non-human and a mere 30 trillion or maybe as many as 37 trillion are human. That is an ecology, my friends. We are talking about trillions and trillions of non-human bacteria, fungi, and also viruses on the inside and outside of our body. And once we add the viruses, it gets really crazy because the number of viruses potentially reaches into the hundreds of trillions. I mean, those are incredible numbers. And it means that our human cells are exceptionally outnumbered, especially once we throw in those viruses. Can you imagine hundreds of trillions? Because trillion is a big number. This is really hard to get our minds around, I think. 38 trillion non-human cells, that's bacteria and fungi, throw in the viruses and it is just, we are way outnumbered. It's clear that we are an ecology and just as a general principle, set aside viruses and bacteria, human beings are composed completely of non-human elements. You are carbon, hydrogen, water. Back, then we can add back in your bacteria, your viruses, and fungi. Human beings consist completely of non-human elements. The lipids of your cells those aren't human, they're just lipids. The water is just water. 
The calcium is calcium. The copper is copper. The iron is iron. Now, understanding ourselves as ecologies, we might be able to understand that a little further if we understand that our very development and functioning depend on these non-human cells, such that without them, we could not live. If we were to suddenly lose them, we would die. Not just suddenly lose all the carbon. Yeah, that would be a problem. Lose all the calcium. That's a problem. If you lose any of your non-human elements, you're in trouble. But even just walking around as an ecology, if you lost all your bacteria, viruses, and fungi, you'd, you'd be done for. And we can see this both on individual and vast evolutionary timescales. On an evolutionary timescale, we have discovered in the past few years some extraordinary things. For instance, a virus that infected animals hundreds of millions of years ago has become essential for the development of embryos. So your development in utero happened as it did because of a virus. Similarly, a virus established our memory pathways as well. We remember the way we do because of a virus that became involved with our ancestors hundreds of millions of years ago. These sorts of factors operate in our smaller timescales as well. One interesting example of this appeared recently in Immunotherapy for Cancer. You may have seen this, depends on what, how much science you follow, but in trying to understand why roughly 20% of patients responded incredibly well to immunotherapy for their cancer, and why 80% did not, the researchers who were in Europe, that's where they did the study, they found the bacteria Acromancia mucinophila. They found it correlated strongly with a positive response to the immunotherapy. And what they discovered is that if we inherit this bacteria and if we eat the right kinds of foods that this bacteria happens to like, we grow more of these bacteria and it alters our immune system, helping us overcome cancer. Isn't that amazing? In another example, we can recall that our gastrointestinal tract is lined with villi, or villi, and these are teeny tiny finger-like projections all along the GI tract. There are anywhere from 6,000 to 25,000 of these per square inch. And each villus, each little finger, has many microvilli or microvilli, as many as 600 on each one of the villi. So these villi and microvilli vastly expand the surface of our GI tract, you know, as any nooks and crannies and folds will do. And they are essential for absorbing nutriment from our food. But if you have no bacteria in your gut, you will not develop these villi, these villi. The very structural development and function of our digestion depends on the presence of non-human cells.
And that's, of course, to say nothing of the microbiome that's helping you break down your food on top of that. We're talking about just the very structural development. You can't get the villi without the bacteria. And this means that to the extent we can somehow speak of a genetic code, and that concept has problems because information itself arises as a developmental process, But to the extent that we can speak of a genetic code, that code does not direct our development as a process of building the structure we call villi or villi. Rather, our genes must somehow guide our pattern of relating with non-human cells in such a way that this relationship produces the possibility for effective digestion. And we can see how many ways this can go wrong. Isn't that amazing? Your your genes had to guide your pattern of relating with non-human cells in such a way that that relationship could produce the possibility for effective digestion. Now let's take a moment to contemplate the idea many of us get implanted into us that our genes consist of a genetic code or that our genes somehow have information in them. This amounts to a ghost in the machine. When we inquire and contemplate a little further, we discover that the gene arises as relational. The gene arises as relationality that mediates further relationality. We don't have pre-given genetic information and then that just gets read out and appears in the world by magic of Disney. You know? I mean, that's how we picture it. Oh, there's the gene, it reads the code, and there it is. But no, that's not it. It's relationality through and through. We practice a way of knowing, being, living, and loving that gets us to think of things in the wrong way. And it can feel pretty radical to let go of that. It's not so easy. We have to understand skillful ecological thinking as a radical transformation in the sense of transformation down at the root. This transformation involves a sense of information itself having a developmental path. Information or meaning has an ontogeny. And that means there isn't pre-given information or meaning in the world. Rather, what we refer to as information or meaning has to do with the dance of relationality. And it has to do with the way that dance unfolds and what becomes meaningful in the dance and possible in the dance. What becomes possible in the dance depends on how the dance gets danced. And that applies to us as human beings too. We don't live in a world that has some abstract thing called information lying about, and then we go dig it up. The world just doesn't work like that. In our world, and in our cosmos, we become the kinds of beings who can dance certain kinds of dance. The dance of a sage differs from the dance of an ordinary ignorant person. And in the dancing of the sage, they allow for information to emerge that otherwise wouldn't emerge. That's what makes them a sage. 
And information sounds like such a technical term because the way our culture teaches us to dance. We rem- it's just a thing as if information means something bad. Oh, that's just information. There's more information. We have information overload. But information has to do with informing. It is a flow of meaning that shapes the world. It has to do with the shapes the world takes, the shapes the being and beings of the world take. So it is so concrete. When we treat information abstractly, of course that's a problem because that's limiting the flow of meaning. The informing process, the meaning process, is very concrete, not abstract like a string of ones and zeros or a string of letters in a so-called genetic code. When we think of information, when we think of meaning, we need to think with intimacy and concreteness and we need to think of patterning in relation to a matrix and then further think of patterning and matrix in relation to knowing or gnosis. The patterning has an informing quality And this has to do with the platonic and archetypal dimension of space and time and also biology and psychology. And then we have some kind of matrix, some kind of an implicate order which contains vast potential. It is potentiality that becomes actualized. That implicit or implicate order and the explicate order are dependent upon our development as beings. And so when a sage dances the dance, new things become possible. And this becoming shapes culture. That is, it informs culture. And that means it informs all of life. It informs nature and culture in non-duality because both nature and culture learn something about what is possible with human embodiment interwoven into the world. Nature and culture learn from our mystics, our visionaries, our sages, our priestesses, our saints, our sky dancers. All these beings teach us about possibilities for this dance of relationality. This is very concrete because it's a little bit different than merely imagining something. Because we can all picture a variety of possibilities, but we're talking about beings who brought it into reality. The sage who moves differently, who says something different, who says something creative, who shows a new power or possibility concretely, not just make-believe, you know, because we can paint things that we can't do. You can paint a human being flying through the air or breathing underwater. You can imagine all kinds of things. You can paint a human being standing on the sun. Only our mystics can tell us if that's possible. Maybe it is possible. When Wolf 21, when you read how Wolf 21 handled a confrontation 
with his own foster father, who he loved, you see a sage-like figure bringing a possibility into existence concretely. It's such a beautiful moment of love wisdom in a wolf. doesn't even need to be a human being. Nature is always finding things out through us. And the wisdom traditions just try to emphasize that she's going to find out a lot more through, through us when we train. When we train in wisdom, love, and beauty, we'll make more things possible in this world that are good for life. But it's just because the sage has become attuned to how nature works. And she has got her thinking and her dancing in attunement. Her dancing is thinking. They're not two different things. Sometimes we we, we emphasize that duality so much that we just want to act like, oh, if I'm thinking, I'm not dancing. And if I'm dancing, I'm not thinking. And this is so heady, and it's going over my head, and this is abstract. We are trying to be so concrete with something that's so intimate that it just feels abstract because we're not in it enough. And if we think we're just going to go mindlessly dance and then we'll be in it, that won't work either. It's just that it's subtle. It's not even that hard, and yet we have to practice it. It's not complicated, but it is complex. And it's just how nature works, how evolution works. Evolution works as this dance, as this constantly finding out what might be possible, really possible, which then gives shape to what we refer to as ecologies, the environment, the soil, the plants. All of it emerges as this dance of relationality, which is sheer openness from one perspective and from another perspective is endless realization of skill. When the spider wasp stings a spider so precisely that the spider gets paralyzed but not killed, that is an extraordinary display of skill, of thinking, of learning, of meaning. It is a realization of skill. It gets learned in an ecology of mind. What we refer to as genes actually constitutes part of the learning process of nature and culture. It's the activity of learning in wasp culture and spider culture and all the other cultures that constitute what we refer to as nature. And we don't learn information as a string of ones and zeros or as a code or any other kind of abstraction. Learning has a relational soul. It has only to do with relationality. You and I are in relationship right now. How are we relating? How do you relate with these ideas? Learning is relational. And that's why we can properly define wisdom as skillful interwovenness. That's a definition we need to emphasize. We have only begun to begin, but as we scale up everything we've considered so far, as we go further into it and unfold it and really try to inquire and understand again, it's going to get easier. But already I think we can start to sense more clearly why we would say that we do not live on earth and we do not live in earth, rather we live as earth. In this life, in this embodiment, you're here. You might think you're from the Pleiades. 
But you know, you're here now. This is it. This is the place right now. We are this living, loving earth. Now, of course, we've also said that uh, what we are transcends the boundaries we would normally try to draw around an ecology. So we are more than this earth, but we are also this earth. You're more than that body. You transcend that skin bag. In every embodiment, we are the living, loving mystery. We are the living, loving cosmos. Everything is just like this. Everything arises as interwoven ecologies. Everything arises as interwoven interwovenness. And we've tried to emphasize what is what is the nature of mind? Well, we laid out five six criteria for it. And we've said that the nature of mind is ecological. And it's such a profound thing. And that profundity comes across when, when we really start to recognize that we cannot confine our mind to our skull or our skin. When we really start to let go into that interwovenness, whoa. We are the total interwovenness of this world and this cosmos. It's a shocking suggestion when we really let it sink in that we cannot confine our mind to our skull or our skin. That we cannot confine ourselves to our skull or our skin. We arise as interwovenness and the functioning of mind arises beyond the boundaries of the skin. We see this most wondrously in experiences of synchronicity and magic, which rupture the barriers of time, space, and identity that we project onto the world and onto ourselves. And I really think this should give us pause. And yet I see time and time again the many ways people try to resist this, really, ultimately, even as they try, they say, well, no, I embrace it. And we have a lot of rationalizations we employ in relation to it so as to preserve our delusions of sovereignty. I am the sovereign individual. And Jung dealt with this in different ways. He has an essay on the archetype of the collective unconscious, and he wrote the following. It's a little passage from Jung. Quote, Whether primitive or not, humankind always stands on the brink of actions it performs itself, but does not control. The whole world wants peace and the whole world prepares for war, to take but one example. Humankind is powerless against humankind, and the gods, as ever, show it the ways of fate. Today we call the gods factors, which comes from facer, to make. The makers stand behind the wings of the world theater. It is so in great things as in small. In the realm of consciousness, we are our own masters. We seem to be the factors themselves. But if we step through the door of the shadow, we discover with terror that we are the objects of unseen factors. To know this is decidedly unpleasant, for nothing is more disillusioning than the discovery 
of our own inadequacy. It can even give rise to primitive panic because instead of being believed in, the anxiously guarded supremacy of consciousness is questioned in the most dangerous way. Whoa, dangerous wisdom, friends. It may not at first seem scary to seriously contemplate the powers that live themselves through us. And here we're using powers in a different way than we were using it before. And as we've described, those who experience these things really directly, who really have, when we have a confrontation with this, we often experience fear. And we have to appreciate, I think, what dangerous wisdom, what threatening wisdom Jung presents us with. Based on his own work as a psychologist who had hundreds of clients and students, and based on his own experience as a psychonaut who went into the human psyche to explore it, and also based on his extensive research in philosophy, including alchemy, Gnosticism, mythology, anthropology, ancient Greek philosophy and culture. On the basis of all of that, Jung tells us that while at a conscious level we clearly experience ourselves as our own masters, in reality the real makers of the world remain hidden to us. If we step through the gateway of our own psyche to explore and inquire and investigate, we discover that we are the objects of powers and causes we cannot control and do not understand. As W. H. Auden put it, unfortunately so well, because sometimes I don't think I don't, I don't think of Auden as the most profound poet, but he said it well, we are lived by powers we pretend to understand. And again, powers here is different than powers we use it in the in our discourse, our kind of political discourse. And we do need to make at least two things clear, I think. First of all, the powers are imminent, not transcendent in the limited sense. They do transcend our ego. But they do not arise in some kind of absolute separation from us. We ourselves are those powers, but our ego most certainly is not in control of them or identifiable with them. So the ego has right to feel them as other, but that's because the ego has confined us to the bag of skin. That's the point. The ego, and we all have one, you know, so how do we re relax a little bit so that we don't have some experience of disappearing? You have a relative self, you are a relative element, but you are an ecology interwoven in other ecologies. Your interwovenness that is itself interwoven in interwovenness. So it's not so easy. The ego is right when it says, whoa, those, that's not me, those powers. There's something flowing through me. But it's also wrong when it says that. Okay, now the second thing, that's a subtle point. It's okay if it doesn't completely germinate in this moment. Give it time to germinate. We'll come back to it. Second thing, I think we should say, we do not pretend to understand. We actually think we do understand. 
I mean, okay, I mean, we, so when Auden says we are live by powers, we pretend to understand. I'm tempted to say, we just say we understand. And I'm not sure how much we are pretending. In a certain sense, maybe we are. In a certain sense, there, there is maybe a facade, maybe in moments when we're being really at our most humble, we say, yeah, I, I don't know what's going on. I think it's too terrifying, though, to say that. And I think that what that line misses is that we actively misknow. And so the act of misknowing is, for a lot of it, we really think we just understand. We don't think we're pretending. Eh, it's nuance. That's hard to tell. And so we we do kind of have this level of thinking we understand, and the ego does often try to identify with these powers, which, as we just said, it's not right for it to do that for sure, and yet it's not really that we're that they are completely other. And somehow it seems so essential for us to just take a deep breath and recognize that something in us just cannot tolerate the discomfort of fully recognizing that we do not understand and something in us experiences terror at the thought of these powers revealing themselves because they are, in some deep sense, totally different from our habitual mind and they do seem like a radical otherness. Now, these two issues, and this is a funny turn uh, that I, I didn't exactly expect that we would take, but I, I really, since we laid out the mind of nature and the nature of mind, it just seems so important to understand what we laid out. That We laid out the whole thinking process of the entire history of evolution on this planet. And we are that. And in our definition of an ecology, we defined ourselves and our mind, our very mind, as something that is transdermal. And this is, if this were just easy, if we could just say, oh, yep, that's right, that's right, yes, I'm not this bag of skin, okay, then we, we are enlightened. We're just trying to say, hey, if you're not enlightened, then we have to think about this more carefully than we might initially want. Because we, we won't understand this without more inquiry so, so that we clear out our incorrect ideas like ideas of power. Okay, Powers, again, are different than power, but like our ideas of political power, we have that. Our ideas about information and mind-body separation and how, oh, I have to get out of my head and get into my heart or I have to get, I'm so in my head, I have to get in my body. All of this is just more confusion. And and so for here, too, I just want to come back to Jose Ortega y Gasset. We've considered Jung and Ortega y Gasset in other contemplations. But the mandala of mind, it works this way. It's holographic. And when we spiral around and we see an element of the mandala in a new way, it can help us arrive at a new insight. And so passages like this one from Ortega y Gasset I have in mind that we're going to consider... It can function like medicine if we allow it. So here's this passage that we have considered, but now let's think of it here in this context. And this is from Revolt of the Masses, and here's what he writes. Quote, Take stock of those around you 
and you will see them wandering about lost through life, like sleepwalkers in the midst of their good or evil fortune, without the slightest suspicion of what is happening to them. You will hear them talk in precise terms about themselves and their surroundings, which would seem to point to their having ideas on the matter. But start to analyze those ideas and you will find that they hardly reflect in any way the reality to which they appear to refer. And if you go deeper, you will discover that there is not even an attempt to adjust the ideas to this reality. Quite the contrary. Through these notions, the individual is trying to cut off any personal vision of reality of their own very life. For life is at the start a chaos in which one is lost. The individual suspects this, but they are frightened at finding themselves face to face with this terrible reality. And they try to cover it over with a curtain of fantasy where everything is clear. It does not worry them that their ideas are not true, that they use them as trenches for the defense of their own existence, as scarecrows to frighten away reality. And that is really such a thing because we live in an ecology of ideas. That's why we have to think about ideas. That's what evolution is. It's the development of ideas. And we can live in a bad ecology, or we can, you could say we can live in an ecology of bad ideas, and that's going to perpetuate our suffering. And this idea of sleepwalk, he mentions sleepwalkers because he's evoking the Socratic image. We're asleep in our lives. We don't think so. We think we're awake. You feel awake. I feel awake. But you and I are asleep. We're not enlightened yet. That's okay. But something in us is pretty scared. And we need compassion for that. We can't pretend that something in us isn't clinging to the wrong notions about what reality are, what reality is, well, you know, what, what we all are. Okay, so there's this war of us against rea- reality. And we have these ideas that we use as scarecrows to keep reality away, and not just ideas in the abstract sense, but our actual activity of life is a bunch of ideas and concepts, agendas, projects, arguments, artworks, parenting, earnings, concepts, identities, politics, corporations, laws, relationships, addictions, aversions, endless distractions, all scarecrows. And we know that Socrates went around trying to show people that although they might speak as if they knew a thing or two, they behaved as if asleep in their own lives. And people saw themselves, Socrates could tell, that people are seeing themselves as sovereign individuals, not as interwoven, not as relational, not as transcending their bag of skin. In his presence and his questioning, Socrates threatened to reveal to people that their ideas, opinions, beliefs, and supposed knowledge and vision all function to keep reality away. So he threatened them with reality and they killed him. It's tricky because we're trying to get closer to reality and that means something in us is going to want to mishear and misunderstand and it's not going to be easy, 
even if we really want to understand. But we can do it. It's, it's doable. People have done it. Sages have existed. And you could go into a little more of this direction if you want by, by checking out the episode called Apocalyptic Love Wisdom. But for now, we just want to acknowledge that ecological thinking demands a recognition of our ecological nature. And that just doesn't sit well with us, really. Which <laughs> is a funny thing to say. We may find it easy to admit we have a microbiome inside our bodies and crawling all over our skin. We may find it a little bit more uncomfortable to acknowledge how that microbiome might influence how we feel, what we think, what we say, how we act. And then we might find it all the more uncomfortable to acknowledge the fullness of what Jung suggests, that our psyche itself has an ecological character. Our psyche itself has an ecological character. Just admitting the existence of unconscious factors means admitting the existence of unconscious origins of some of our actions, our thoughts, our words, or let's say some aspect of all our thoughts, actions, and words. We say and do things that we may try to explain on a conscious level as the activity of our choice, but from a more holistic perspective, that may not hold up at all. In one of the most startling examples of this in dominant culture science, it's a team headed by Chun Seung Soon published a paper in 2008. They demonstrated a 10-second delay between the experience of a supposed conscious choice and the indications coming from the larger ecology of mind. Okay, so what the team discovered is that they could look at what was going on in a participant's brain and reliably predict 10 seconds before the participant claimed to make their own spontaneous conscious choice, they could predict 10 seconds before that that the person was about to do to make that decision. Now, that's a huge thing. This is really crazy. So let, maybe let's try to picture this. This is our final example, and then we'll come to a wrap-up here. Imagine I put you in a brain scanner. I ask you to make a choice. And let's say the choice is you're going to push a button. So I just say, hey, look, you're going to choose for yourself under your own control when you're going to push the button. And I ask you to lay there, and then just right when you make the choice, you're going to note what, what the time is on a little timer that is running. And it's down to, like, it's a fast-moving timer, in a way where we can get you to come down to, like, now, you know, or you can just say now. Um, but you're just trying to note, they don't have you say it, but they usually have you look at a little clock so that you know the very instant that you made the choice. And then you start to move your finger, you know, because we understand it takes you a little bit of time to move your finger and all of that. So you lay there and you're waiting and then you say, now I'm going to do it. And at the moment that you did, made the decision, you felt yourself saying, now I'm going to do it. You register what time it was, and you may, and then you go ahead and push the button. And it feels like a choice to you. And you think, this was the moment I made the choice. It's now. Okay, now, I'm in the other room with the scientists, and they're observing. And the moment that you think you have decided, and you say, now, I decided now. That was already 10 seconds after one of the scientists turned to me and said, okay, you see there, I can tell by this person's brain that 10 seconds from now, 
they're going to claim they made the decision at that time. The decision is already made, but they don't know it. They're not saying now, but they will in 10 seconds say, now I decided. Can you imagine this crazy gap? That from your own perspective, when you think, I'm going to do this right now, your larger ecology made the decision 10 seconds before that. 10 seconds. That's a very long time. Think about that. Here we go. Ready? That was only five seconds. <laughs> Radio silence is scary. I don't want you to be think I had gone. Wait, what happened? Did he pass out? Ten seconds. And that's only a small aspect of the ecology of mine. It's one narrow little experiment that should maybe open up a sense of wonder for how our living, loving world actually functions. And it really shows the imminence of mind. Imminence, not transcendence. Our sense of transcendence. You can see how we're so tempted by the transcendent because I want to say, I made the decision. I decided. But there is no I. There's an ecology interwoven with other ecologies. Now, I just want to make one technical note, and that is that if you know how scanners work, or even if you don't, and I'm making this note so we're being really clear, uh, our, our scanners can't yet process all of the data in real time. So the way that we know this lag is that they run the brain scan and then they, they look at the data afterwards and they compare it to where you said that you were making the choice. So really they're not making the prediction in real time. They're making the prediction by looking at the data and playing it back. So when they take all the data from your brain scan and they read it, they can look at that scan and they can say, oh, in 10 seconds the person's going to claim that they're choosing now. And so it's not live, but it's still the same principle. They are able to make this prediction, which is huge. And we've taken time to emphasize this because too little discussion about these matters makes um, these sorts of things clear. And I, I don't mean about brain scanners, I mean about the ecology of mind. Ecological thinking is incredibly intimate and it applies directly to our experience of life. And it does so at times in ways that can provoke discomfort. I I mean, ideally we'd like it to shift to wonder, wow, how how is that possible? But it also just feels like, oh my gosh, my ego has been assaulted here and the ego wants to find a way around it. Well, that can't be right and And it's just to say that we don't really know what we are. That's the point of spiritual practice. And that's the shift into ecological thinking. Now, we're going to try to keep some of these issues in mind as we go further. And for now, though, we have definitely earned a break. If you made it this far, wow, thank you. It's a little bit of a longer contemplation. And uh, we'll keep going more deeply. We might be able to bring in some questions if you have some. If you have any questions or reflections, make sure to send them in. And we might be able to bring some of them to a future contemplation. Until next time, my friends, this is Dr. Nikos, your friendly neighborhood soul doctor, reminding you that your soul and the soul of the world are not two things. Take good care of them.